This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of patellar instability. From the knee and sports section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Patellar instability is a condition characterized by patellar subluxation or dislocation episodes as a result of injury, ligamentous laxity, or increased Q angle of the knee. Diagnosis is made clinically in the acute setting with a patellar dislocation with a traumatic knee effusion and in chronic settings with passive patellar translation and a positive J sign. Treatment is non-operative with bracing for first-time dislocation without bony avulsion or presence of articular loose bodies. Operative management is indicated for chronic and recurrent patellar instability. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics, patellar instability most commonly occurs in the second to third decades of life. Risk factors can be broken down into general factors and anatomical factors. General factors include ligamentous laxity, for example, in the setting of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, previous patellar instability event, and what's known as miserable malalignment syndrome, which is a term named for the three anatomic characteristics that lead to an increased Q-angle, which are femoral antiversion, genuvalgum, and external tibial torsion slash pronated feet. Anatomical factors include osseous factors and muscle factors. Osseous factors include things like patella alta, which causes the patella to not articulate with the sulcus, losing its constraint effects, trochlear dysplasia, excessive lateral patellar tilt, which is measured in extension, and lateral femoral condyle hypoplasia. Muscle factors include things like a dysplastic vastus medialis oblique or VMO muscle, or overpull of the lateral structures, such as the iliotibial band and the vastus lateralis. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of patellar instability is usually on non-contact twisting injury with the knee extended and the foot externally rotated. The patient will usually reflexively contract the quadriceps, thereby reducing the patella. Osteochondral fractures occur most often as the patella relocates. A direct blow is less common. For example, a knee-to-knee collision in basketball or a football helmet to the side of the knee. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over passive stability and dynamic stability. So passive stability is achieved with structures like the medial patellofemoral ligament or MPFL. The femoral origin and insertion is between the medial epicondyle and the adductor tubercle and is usually the site of avulsion of the MPFL. The MPFL is the primary restraint in the first 20 degrees of knee flexion. Note that patellofemoral bony structures account for stability in deeper knee flexion specifically trochlear groove morphology, patella height, and patellar tracking. In terms of dynamic stability, this is provided by the vastus medialis, which attaches to the MPFL. You can learn more about this in the podcast episode about the vastus medialis. Now let's talk about the classification of patellar instability, which can be classified into three types, acute traumatic, chronic patholaxity, and habitual. Acute traumatic occurs equally by gender and may occur from a direct blow, for example, a helmet-to-knee collision in football. Moving on to chronic patholaxity, this is characterized with recurrent subluxation episodes and occurs more often in women and is associated with malalignment. Finally, habitual patellar instability is usually painless, occurs during each flexion movement, and pathology is usually proximal, for example, a tight IT band and vastus lateralis. Now let's talk about the presentation of patellar instability. Symptoms include complaints of instability and anterior knee pain. 
On physical exam, you may find an acute dislocation, which is usually associated with a large hemarthrosis. Absence of swelling supports ligamentous laxity and habitual dislocation mechanisms. Other findings on physical exam may include medial-sided tenderness over the MPFL and an increase in passive patellar translation. Remember that patellar translation is measured in quadrants of translation, where the midline of the patella is considered zero, and also should be compared to the contralateral side. Know that normal motion is less than two quadrants of patellar translation. Lateral translation of the medial border of the patella to the lateral edge of the trochlear groove is considered two quadrants and is considered an abnormal amount of translation. Other findings on physical exam can include patellar apprehension, in which passive lateral translation results in guarding and a sense of apprehension. Physical exam may also reveal an increased Q angle and what's known as a J sign, which is excessive lateral translation in extension, which pops into the groove as the patella engages the trochlea early in flexion. A J sign is associated with patella alta. Moving on to imaging, radiograph should be obtained to rule out fracture or loose body. Fracture of the medial patellar facet is most common. However, you may also see a fracture of the lateral femoral condyle. An AP view is best to evaluate the overall lower extremity alignment and version. Lateral views are best to assess for trochlear dysplasia. And specifically, you may see a crossing sign, a double contour sign, and a supratrochlear spur. A crossing sign is when the trochlear groove lies in the same plane as the anterior border of the lateral condyle and represents a flattened trochlear groove. A double contour sign is when the anterior border of the lateral condyle lies anterior to the anterior border of the medial condyle and represents a convex trochlear groove slash hypoplastic medial condyle. Finally, a supratrochlear spur arises in the proximal aspect of the trochlea. Lateral views are also good to evaluate for patella height, that is patella alta versus baja. Know that Blumensatz line should extend to the inferior pole of the patella at 30 degrees of knee flexion. Some methods to evaluate patellar height include the insal salvati method, where normal is between 0.8 and 1.2, the Blackburn-Peel method, where normal is between 0.5 and 1, the Catton de Champs method, where normal is between 0.6 and 1.3, and you can also evaluate the plateau patella angle, where normal is between 20 and 30 degrees. Sunrise slash merchant views are best to assess for lateral patellar tilt. With a lateral patellofemoral angle, normal is an angle that opens laterally. The angle is between the line along the subchondral bone of the lateral trochlear facet plus the posterior femoral condyles. Normal is greater than 11 degrees. On the sunrise slash merchant view, you can also measure the congruence angle, where normal is negative 6 degrees. You can also measure the sulcus angle, which will evaluate for trochlear dysplasia. Values of greater than 140 degrees indicate flattening of the trochlea concerning for dysplasia. A CT scan can be used to measure the TT-TG distance, or the tibial tubercle to the trochlear groove distance. This measures the distance between the two perpendicular lines from the posterior cortex to the tibial tubercle and the trochlear groove. Greater than 20 millimeters is usually considered abnormal. Finally, an MRI can be used to help further rule out suspected loose bodies, specifically an osteochondral lesion and or bone bruising, a medial patellar facet fracture, which again is the most common, and a lateral femoral condyle fracture. An MRI may also reveal tear of the MPFL, where a tear is usually at the medial femoral epicondyle. Now let's go over adult treatment, which can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes NSAIDs, activity modification, and physical therapy. 
This is indicated as the mainstay of treatment for first-time patellar dislocators, without any loose bodies or intraarticular damage. This is also indicated in habitual dislocators. The technique can involve short-term mobilization for comfort followed by six weeks of controlled motion. Physical therapy will have an emphasis on strengthening, specifically closed-chain short-arc quadriceps exercises, quadriceps strengthening, core and hip strengthening to improve limb positioning and balance, specifically the hip abductors, gluteals, and abdominals. Other techniques can include a patellar stabilizing sleeve or J-brace and consider knee aspiration for tense effusions and know that positive fat globules indicates fracture. Operative options include arthroscopic debridement and removal of loose body versus repair with or without stabilization. Other operative options include MPFL repair, MPFL reconstruction with autograft versus allograft, a Fulkerson-type osteotomy, which is an anterior and medial tibial tubercle transfer, tibial tubercle distalization, lateral release, and trochleoplasty. So starting with arthroscopic debridement and removal of loose body versus repair with or without stabilization, this is indicated for displaced osteochondral fractures or loose bodies and may be an indication for operative treatment in a first-time dislocator. As far as techniques, this will involve arthroscopic versus open removal versus repair of the osteochondral fragment. Primary repair with screws or pins can be done if there's sufficient bone available for fixation. Moving on to MPFL repair, this is indicated in acute first-time dislocation with the bony fragment. The technique will involve a direct repair when surgery can be done within the first few days. However, no clinical studies support this over non-operative treatment. Moving on to MPFL reconstruction with autograft versus allograft, this is indicated for recurrent instability and when there is no significant underlying malalignment. As far as techniques, the gracilis or semitendinosus are commonly used, and know that these are stronger than the native MPFL. The femoral origin can be reliably found radiographically, and this is known as Shottle's point. Know that a femoral tunnel positioned too proximally results in a graft that is too tight, or what's known as quote-unquote high and tight. As far as outcomes of MPFL reconstruction with an autograft versus allograft, severe trochlear dysplasia is the most important predictor of residual patellofemoral instability after isolated MPFL reconstruction. Moving on to a Fulkerson-type osteotomy, which again is an anterior and medial tibial tubercle transfer. As far as indications, this may be used in addition to an MPFL repair or reconstruction or in isolation for significant malalignment. The indication is also for a TTTG distance of greater than 20 millimeters on CT. The technique involves an anteromedialized displacement of the tibial tubercle osteotomy and fixation. And this will correct the TTTG distance to 10 to 15 millimeters, however should never be less than 10 millimeters. Moving on to tibial tubercle distalization, this is indicated in the setting of patella alta. The technique will involve distal displacement of the osteotomy and fixation. Moving on to lateral release, as far as indications, an isolated release is no longer indicated for instability. However, it is only indicated if there is excessive lateral tilt or tightness after medialization. The technique will be arthroscopic. Finally, a trochleoplasty is rarely addressed in the United States of America, even if trochlear dysplasia is present. However, you may consider it in severe or revision cases. The technique will involve an arthroscopic or open trochlear deepening procedure. Moving on to pediatric treatment, this will have the same principles as adults in general, but remember you must preserve the physis. So remember, do not do a tibial tubercle osteotomy, as this will harm the growth plate of the proximal tibia.
Finally, let's end this review session talking about some complications. And the ones to know include recurrent dislocation, as well as medial patellar dislocation and medial patellofemoral arthritis. So in terms of recurrent dislocation, redislocation rates with non-operative treatment may be high, that is 15 to 50% at two to five years. And recurrence rates are higher in those patients who sustain a primary dislocation under the age of 20. Finally, medial patellar dislocation and medial patellofemoral arthritis is almost exclusively iatrogenic as a result of prior patellar stabilization surgery. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A radiologist's report of a lateral knee radiograph comments that the height of the patella is 4 centimeters and the length of the patellar tendon is 3 centimeters. Which of the following may lead to this measurement? And the choices are 1. Osteochondritis desiccans 2. Quadriceps tendon rupture 3. Inferior pole patellar sleeve avulsion 4. MPFL disruption and 5. Nail patella syndrome The correct answer to this question is 2. Quadriceps tendon rupture so the question describes a knee with patella baja, which would likely be seen in the presence of a quadriceps tendon rupture. The measurements described allow you to measure an insole salvati index. The insole salvati index is the ratio of the patellar tendon length to the patellar height, which is the distance from the superior pole to the inferior pole. These measurements give a ratio of 0.75, which indicates the presence of patella baja. Normal values range from 0.8 to 1.2. A lower ratio is diagnostic of patella baja, while a higher ratio is diagnostic of patella alta. The insole salvati index, as well as some other measures of the patella's position within the trochlea, are important when evaluating conditions such as patellar instability or patellofemoral pain. Insole and salvati present their original paper describing the anatomy of the knee with respect to patellar positioning. They note that previous methods of determining patellar positioning was either too complicated or too subjective. They found the length of the patellar tendon and the height of the patella to be approximately equal and saw no variations greater than 20%. Thus, they proposed the insole salvati index with normal values ranging from 0.8 to 1.2. Shabshin et al. present a study making similar calculations as the insole salvati index, but done on sagittal MRI rather than the lateral radiographs. They found a slightly higher degree of variation and defined normal as ranging from 0.79 to 1.52. They also noted females tended to have higher ratios on average compared to males. Agilietti et al. compared various measurements of the patellofemoral joint in a group of asymptomatic knees compared to knees with recurrent patellar subluxation. The normal knees were found to have an insole salvati index of about 1, average congruence angle of negative 8, and an average Q angle of 15 degrees. The subluxating knees had higher insole salvati indexes with an average of 1.23, higher congruence angles with an average of plus 16, and a higher Q angle with an average of 20 degrees. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, osteochondritis desiccans does not lead to alterations of the insole salvati index and thus would not cause patella baja. Answer 3, an inferior pole patellar sleeve avulsion would lead to patella alta and an insole salvati index greater than 1.2. Answer 4. A disruption of the medial patellofemoral ligament, or MPFL, would lead to patellar instability and abnormalities of other measures, such as the patellar tilt. And finally, answer 5. Nail patella syndrome is a genetic disorder often associated with small or absent patella. The measurements given are not diagnostic of this condition. Moving on to the next question. 
Which of the following structures attaches between the medial epicondyle and adductor tubercle of the femur? And the choices are 1, medial head of the gastrocnemius, 2, medial collateral ligament, 3, semimembranosus, 4, adductor magnus, and 5, medial patellofemoral ligament. The correct answer to this question is 5, medial patellofemoral ligament. So the femoral attachment of the medial patellofemoral ligament, or MPFL, is located between the femoral medial epicondyle and the adductor tubercle. During lateral patellar dislocation, the femoral attachment of the MPFL is a common site of injury and avulsion. Traumatic injury or laxity to the MPFL can cause future patellar instability as the MPFL is the primary restraint to lateral patellar translation in the first 20 degrees of knee flexion. Surgery for reconstruction of the MPFL requires an understanding of the anatomic landmarks for drilling the femoral socket. Wisdick et al. used radio-opaque markers implanted into the femoral and tibial attachments of the superficial medial collateral ligament and the femoral attachments of the posterior oblique and medial patellofemoral ligaments of cadaveric knees. On the AP radiographs, the attachment site of the MPFL was an average of 42.3 millimeters from the femoral joint line. On the lateral radiograph, the MPFL was an average of 8.9 millimeters from the adductor tubercle and was located in the anteroproximal quadrant. Schottel et al. in a cadaveric study looked at radiographic landmarks for femoral tunnel placement in MPFL reconstruction. A reproducible anatomical and radiographic point, 1 millimeter anterior to the posterior cortex extension line, 2.5 millimeters distal to the posterior origin of the medial femoral condyle and proximal to the level of the posterior point of the Blumensat line on a lateral radiograph with both posterior condyles projected in the same plane represented the mean femoral MPFL isometric center. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, medial head of the gastrocnemius originates off the posterior aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Answer 2, the MCL attaches approximately 3.2 millimeters proximal and 4.8 millimeters posterior from the medial femoral epicondyle. Answer 3, semimembranosus inserts onto the posterior surface of the medial tibial condyle. And finally, answer 4, adductor magnus inserts onto the adductor tubercle. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following best describes the radiographic landmarks on a lateral radiograph for locating the femoral attachment of the medial patellofemoral ligament, or MPFL, during reconstruction? And the choices are 1. The intersection of a line extended from the middle of the shaft and Blumensatz line. 2. Anterior to a line extended from the middle of the shaft and Blumensatz line. 3. Posterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and distal to Blumensatz line. 4. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and distal to Blumensatz line. And 5. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and proximal to Blumensatz line. The correct answer to this question is 5. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and proximal to Blumensatz line. So correct positioning of a graph for MPFL reconstruction requires accurate placement of the femoral attachment site, which is anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex and just proximal to the posterior extension of Blumensatz line. Intraoperative fluoroscopy can be used to accurately identify this position. Schottel et al. have described the radiographic landmark to be 1 mm anterior to the posterior cortex extension line, 2.5 mm distal to the posterior origin of the medial femoral condyle, and proximal to the level of the posterior point of Blumensatz line. 
Redfern et al. evaluate this radiographic point and found it to be within 4 millimeters of the true attachment on anatomic dissection. And moving on to the final question. You see a patient in the emergency room with an acute lateral patellar dislocation. Which of the following factors is associated with the highest risk of persistent patellar instability? And the choices are 1. Younger age. 2. Increased Q angle. 3. Male gender. 4. Previous patellar instability event. And 5. Amount of lateral patellar tilt. The correct answer to this question is 4. Previous patellar instability event. So females, not males, have a higher incidence of patellofemoral instability due to their increased Q angle. The Q angle, or quadriceps angle, is the angle formed by the intersection of a line from the ASIS to the patella and from the patella to the tibial tubercle. Normal Q angle in males is 14 degrees and in females is 18 degrees. A higher angle means that there is a larger lateral vector force on the patella, which predisposes to lateral patellar instability. While an increased Q angle increases the chance for dislocation, a previous history of dislocation is the strongest predictor. Fithian et al. prospectively followed 189 patients for 2 to 5 years and found that the risk was highest among females 10 to 17 years old and those with previous instability episodes. Patients with a prior history had 7 times higher odds of subsequent instability episodes during follow-up than first-time dislocators. That's all for this review about patellar instability. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.